Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast, which once again comes from the live MK3D show that I do every month at the BFI South Bank in London. The shows are always packed, so we split them across two podcasts. Last week, we heard from Jonas Per Rasmussen, whose awards-fated film Flea is currently in UK cinemas, and Cherisha Taker, BAFTA-nominated for her short film The Black Cop. This week, there's more BAFTA glitz as we talk to Clio Barnard, director of Ali and Ava, which is up for Outstanding British Film, and Best Actor. But we start with Peter Middleton and James Spinney, the makers of Notes on Blindness, whose new film, The Real Charlie Chaplin, is in cinemas and online now. So sit back, relax, and take a front row seat at MK3D, live from the BFI South Bank. Now, if you're a if you're a regular, you will have heard me talking about a, a film called Notes on Blindness, which came out a few years ago, which I absolutely loved, and I sort of raved about it and how powerful it was. And the directors of that film have now made a documentary about another subject, which is very very close to my heart. It's a documentary about Charlie Chaplin. Um, this is the trailer for the real Charlie Chaplin, which I think sets up the film very very nicely. Mr. Chaplin, are you a communist? You have no patriotic feelings about this country or any other country. I have patriotism, and my patriotism rests with the whole world. In the name of democracy, let us all unite! He accomplished his life's dream, but I don't think he ever really got over his doubts. He said to me, I used to be very famous, he needed an audience. Everyone who gets too close to him, he'll end up suffocating. He couldn't help it. Can I ask how old you were when you married him? He was inaccessible in so many ways. I had grown up with the icon. But the man, I had no idea who the man was. Please welcome Peter Middleton and James Spinney. Welcome to the show. It's Thank such a pleasure to have you because I have been wanting to have you on ever since Notes on Blindness, which I just, you know, I, I loved. And I'm so glad that you've made this documentary. It's about a subject which is very close to my heart and I know will be to, to you know, to many film fans. Why, why Chaplin? Have you both always been interested in Chaplin? 
That's a really good question. I, I feel like we've always had an idea of Chaplin, like, like a lot of people, I'm sure, um, even long before we'd seen any of his films. Um, personally, I hadn't seen them until I was studying, and um, I first watched City Lights, I think, about the age of 17. Um, and it completely overturned, for me, my idea of, of what silence, silent cinema was, um, which actually, I think, Maybe Chaplin had become sort of emblematic, I think, for people who haven't taken a deep dive of a sort of exaggerated, quite cartoonish version of silent cinema. Um, I think because those films are often played at the wrong speed um, and they've often been transfers of transfers and so Chaplin is kind of fading away in the image. Um, whereas watching those, um, they just felt so fresh and subversive. Um, and something which we talk about a lot in the film is, you know, this rapport that Chaplin instantly builds up with you as, an, as, a, as a member of the audience, that he kind of breaks the fourth wall, he looks out at you um, and creates this connection. Um, and so, yeah, we were captivated by those films, um, but it came to us after Notes on Blindness um, through um, a producer called Ben Lindbergh, who had who, been speaking with the Chaplin estate for a long time about making a film, um, and the idea of being let loose in the Chaplin archives and be able to explore that extraordinary body of work, and also that, that life story, which has been called one of the great rags to riches stories, was just an incredible... And did you that. have sort of full cooperation from everybody that you needed it from? Yeah, the... the um uh, ben, James has mentioned, our producer had had, had he actually had a, a family connection with Chaplin. So his um, his his mother had been to, to 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 ballet school with Geraldine Chaplin, right? Which is a pretty good in yes. in terms of uh, in terms of you know, connections with the family. But but he'd over a number of years had managed to build this rapport with the estate. And I think had always been pushing that you know there should be a long form uh, documentary about about Chaplin. And he um, so so by the time we were came on board, you know we were we were given assurances that we'd have full kind of creative control and, and the estate were ex enormously helpful to us, of course, and they have a, a remarkable archive there and they, they gave us um, full access to, to Chaplin's complete kind of creative and, um, and personal archive, so all of his films and some fantastic materials, including this uh, three-day audio interview that was recorded with Chaplin in 1966 yeah. um, that had never been heard before and actually kind of... Uh, because of modern digital restoration techniques, had never really been usable. There were little fragments of it had appeared before, um, but we were able to really take a deep dive in that in full knowledge that we could kind of bring that to life. And, and so that's really how it started, and it kind of fanned out from there. You have a long-standing fascination with taped interviews. Anyone who knows notes on blindness, well, it's, it's very hard to describe, but it's what you do is you use the original audio and then you dramatise it. Um, we see some of that uh, in, in the, the Chaplin film. Tell me about that technique. What is it about that technique that fascinates and obsesses you? Yeah, it's, uh, so it's something, as you said, that we used in Notes and Blindness, and it was um, very much inspired by Clio's work as well, the Arbor. Um, I think for us, um, thinking about it in terms of this film, um, you know, Chaplin's life story, which spans 88 years and begins in 1889, which takes in these great works, and, and I think we, we, we felt very early on quite overwhelmed by just the scale of it. Um, you know, it's a life that he sort of lived through cinema. He told his own story again and again as the tramp. Um, and I think as we started to assemble it, we felt that we wanted to look for ways to kind of find present tenses within that, where we could kind of settle into the room. There's also a response to kind of feeling, I think, overwhelmed by the fact that, you know, Chaplin's been dead for so many years now, and, and, and apart from his children, most people who knew him well are, um, are no longer with us. And, and so we felt sort of as though we were kind of following in the footsteps of other people who had, who had traced his life back in the day, people like Kevin Brownlow, who we, um, who we see in the film interviewing Chaplin's childhood friend, 
or Richard Merriman, who's the Life magazine reporter who got this three-day interview with him in the 60s. I think as we were listening to those recordings, we sort of felt transported into those spaces. We felt that we were in the kitchen of Effie Wisdom in Norfolk, age 98 and 91, I think she was, talking to, um, to Kevin about Chaplin's childhood. And similarly, um, listening to Chaplin tell his own story in his own words in this interview. And uh, as we listened to it, we were looking at the, the hundreds of photographs that were taken of him at that time. And so I think, you know, in some ways, biography is, is, a, is quite an imaginative process, really, you know, particularly when, the, with, with our previous film, Notes on Blindness, it was very much a collaboration with John Hull and his family, because they, you know, were co-authoring the film with us. But this felt a bit more like, um, I don't know, we, we begin the film with images of like a seance, and, and there's a sense, in a way, that it was a, a bit like that. You know, you've got all these fragments, and you're trying to find a way to kind of find a journey through it. And so I think the dramatizations were a way to kind of do that whilst using this, you know, authentic documentary audio. I think there's going to be lots of stuff in there that a lot of audiences won't know about. Some years ago, I had done a radio doc for Radio 4, which was a, we, 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 in the, the Chaplin Archive in Paris. And they, we were looking at, you know, Dadaism and the way in which his image had become, you know, taken on by the surrealists and had become something which, which I was discovering stuff I didn't know anything about. And at the beginning of your film, there is an awful lot of stuff that people are going to go, I had no idea about the, this particularly this mass hallucination that everyone saw Charlie Chaplin at exactly the same time because by that point he was the most reproduced form in the world. Did, was that new to you? Was that discovery? I mean, yeah, it was. I mean, I think we have a, a sense, there's almost a, sort of a, a cultural residue, isn't there, of like how, of the name Charlie Chaplin. Everyone brings to mind that, that, that image of the, the hat and the cane and, uh, and that sort of silhouette outline. And, and for it to still be so sort of prevalent over 100 years since he, he yeah, first One of the most recognisable silhouettes on the planet. You'd have to yeah. say, wouldn't you? Um, and so there's something in that. And, um, and the more we kind of looked into it, the, we, were, we were completely taken aback by these stories you referred to of just how much more intense it was at the time when Chaplin first kind of took a step onto the screen in, in 1914. Within a couple of years, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the globe were, um, were, were regularly watching uh, Chaplin films. And, and there's some fascinating stories that sort of came out about that, just, just um, the way that that, that, that that image was replicated. Because of course, you know, even in America at that time, you know, you had, um, it was a real melting pot of cultures. And because the films were silent, it meant that you could have people who didn't share a language being able to sit next to each other yeah. in a cinema and experience the same thing. And that traveled across the globe. Um, and you know, we, we, we found some wonderful stories about uh, relating to that. You know, there was uh, a favorite of ours is that, and, which we weren't entirely able to corroborate, so it didn't quite make it into the film, is that there was, um, that, that in post-revolution Russia, uh, that, that, that people were pulling down statues of, of um, um, in, in, in churches of, and of czars and replacing them with effigies of the tramp. You know, you hear stories of, of these these travelling uh, picture shows going around. You know, the continents of Africa and so on. All of which is sort of just out of reach, not quite uh, not quite sure whether or not it's fact. But the the point is that you know that, that these myths are so pervasive that that, yeah. that says something about it in and of itself. I. I I hadn't ever heard, or I'd, I'd read of it, but I'd never ever heard the, um, the Monsieur Vadou press conference, which begins with him saying, let the butchery commence. And you cover in great detail the, you know, the anti-communist stuff against him driving him out of America. You also, of course, cover the issue of his relationship with women, which is at very best problematic. How difficult was it to deal with that stuff? I think 
if, if Chaplin's fame was, was this, this fame that d didn't exist before him, you know, the, the type of celebrity that Chaplin experienced um, when he first stepped onto the screen in 1914, there was no precedent for that. Yeah, so he was, first worldwide superstar. Exactly. He was famous in a way that no one had been before because the technology just hadn't existed. Um, and by contrast, I think the scandals with Lita Gray, his second wife, um, around their divorce and some of the things that she mentions about the, the abuse that she suffered during their, their marriage, um, where I think the first time the audiences were having to confront, I think, a sort of crisis of, of how to reconcile what, what she was saying with the image of this person that they had on screen. And she talks very movingly about how, um, how, pe how she didn't feel that she was believed because people couldn't reconcile what she was saying with the image of, uh, with their relationship with him, which was so powerful. Um, but we wanted to put Lita's story front and center, and we wanted to um, not shy away from it. Um, it's uh, something that's, you know, making a film about Chaplin is a, is a very complex thing, and he, there are so many facets to his character that we had to explore. When you got, had the film finished, it, I mean, I imagine that there must have been stuff that you wanted to get in, but, you know, you have to make it into a... How much stuff did you not get in? How much is not in the film? I mean, there are whole shadow cuts of this film. I mean, and, and, and actually, we were talking about this earlier on. That the, the great thing is that we feel like there is still, you know, any number of other films about Chaplin that could be made. And you know, there's a, a wonderful quote that we kind of hit upon quite early on in our research that a journalist had written in the early 1920s that you know there, there are more uh, myths, rumours, and legends about Chaplin than than, than many a religion. Yeah. And and it is a sort of a, a, a wormhole that you can you can plunge down. I mean, in terms of like archive and 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 bits uh, and materials that we felt like we were close to, but weren't quite able to get our hands on, there are some, yeah, some still some stuff out there. I yeah, think. I mean, I love the fact that even after watching the doc, you still think it, there's still more. There's still more to find. I mean, and also as somebody, I used to be very sniffy about Chaplin. I used to have the thing about, well, you know, Buster Keaton, great Chaplin, sentimental, and then I had that kicked out of me by. Mike Hammond, who's a great Chaplin scholar, who said, you've never seen Monsieur Vadou, have you? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, well, you don't know what you're talking about. So I'm, 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 I really like the documentary very, very much. I asked you to pick two films as well uh, that were kind of, you know, inspirational. Um, let's go for For All Mankind first. What it, for people who don't know it, because it's 1989, what is For All Mankind? So For All Mankind, as you say, is a, is a film made in the late 80s by a filmmaker called Al Reinhardt now. Um, so it's, it's, it's a film uh, about the, the sort of Apollo project, the, um, the, the sort of very meditative and, and lyrical film that folds in these sort of interviews with, with NASA astronauts. And it is very much a film about space, but, but what particularly kind of took me was it's as much of a feeling, yes, about that kind of voyage and exploration, but very much a, a film about, about the Earth as well. And, yeah. and it brings into to focus just the sort of the vulnerability and, and fragility of our, of our uh, planet here. And I saw it. Um, at quite a sort of formative stage, I suppose, in, in, in my career. When I, it wasn't even a career then. It was sort of just starting out in filmmaking and, and has an interesting kind of coda to, to where I'm at now as well. So, yeah, it was a very influential film for me. And Should we have a look at the clip? Yeah.
In other words, I love you. We had a little tape recorder on board, which you could listen to the music. Uh, we were allowed to carry a personal cassette on there so you could play the music. Mine was country music. Hi, this is Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. We came down to the studio and we thought we'd put together a little thing that you could take along with you on your trip. Now, you know, when you get back, they're probably going to put you in the movies. So the first thing we're going to do for you is to uh, play a little song called Act Naturally. It goes like this. They're going to put me in the movies. They're going to make a big star out of me. second appearance of a Walkman. I could watch that all day because I, I'm, I'm in love with all of that stuff. When I went to America and I went to the, you know, the Air and Space Museum and you see the capsules that came back and it's like really you know, old valve switches and you see the, you know, the chair where the astronaut's butt is that is literally that far away from the outside of the hole which was on fire as it was... How they ever got back alive is astonishing to me and I, I love that. I just love the way that captures it. So... Okay, great. Filmmaking, I can see that. Documentary, great. Your choice. Um, so, so my choice is, um, is a film that was my grandparents' favourite film. Um, and we used to watch it when I was quite young. I think, like Jonas, I'm questioning, yeah, was it a family film? I don't know. Um, so it's just a film that's always been in my life and that, um, that I feel like if it was taken away, I'd be somehow deprogrammed in some way. Um, it's the film Cabaret, um, <laughs> which... Um, which I just remember being, I mean, we've talked a bit about that thing that Chaplin can do when he looks at you and that connection. And I remember feeling kind of just pulled into this world and into, through the charm of like Liza Minnelli and Joel Grey and of the Kit Kat Club as well. Um, I, I sort of, we knew it as kids just back to front, although I guess a lot of it was going way over our heads. Um, and I've sort of then loved it throughout my life. Um, I also think that the Kit Kat Club is, makes it the perfect musical because, um, because by having that, it, no one has to do the thing, that awkward thing in musicals where they're sort of talking, talking, and then they start to sing. Like, you can just sing in the Kit Kat Club in this sort of parallel world, which is sort of this psychological space, and sing about what's happening, but in a very indirect ways, and yeah. It's weird, because Cabaret is often cited as the musical that people who don't like musicals like, for exactly that reason, that people yeah. don't, with the exception of Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which kind of makes, sort of makes diegetic sense. But um, we're going to show an entire song from the Kit Kat we, we were looking at sort of cutting this down, but there isn't anywhere to cut it. And also, I think it's relevant in relation to Chaplin, because what's happening in this, although it's a, it's a musical, many of the expressions and the way in which the story is being told owe such a debt to silent cinema. So, here we go. Money makes a world go around, a world go around, a world go around. Money makes a world go around, it makes a world go around. So do you watch it often? 
Uh, yeah, once every year or so, I'd say. I mean, my, my partner Jude loves it too, and um, so, yeah, and we kind of just constantly sing it to each other, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter had a birthday a few years back, and we said, what do you want to do? She said, I want to go and see Cabaret in the cinema. So we went to the Prince Charles to see it on the big screen, and it, I mean, it is, it's lovely to be able to play that on the big screen because it's one thing seeing it at home, but it needs to be projected. And it's also that that brilliant combination of it's a musical but it's a horror film and it is really really horrifying absolutely but i feel like it shows that you can deal with huge subjects with a real lightness of touch and and they just show i mean that tomorrow it belongs to me is a real turning point in the film because i feel like you're glimpsing things right from the beginning yeah. you're seeing little shades of things but they they understand that you don't need much um and uh yeah it's so it's it's and then the way that the then the final shot mirrors the opening shot into a mirror but you're seeing all these brown shirts in there when but the beginning uh yeah Congratulations on The Real Charlie Chaplin. It opens in the UK next Friday. Yeah, that's right. And uh, as I said, I, I think the best thing is you don't have to know about Chaplin to enjoy it. But I think even if you do know stuff about Chaplin, there will be stuff in there that you haven't seen before. Even if you heard it first, that it was so lovely to hear those, I mean, particularly the Monsieur Vadu uh, conference, which was really fascinating to me. So congratulations. And I wish you every success with the film. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Again, uh, to uh, BAFTA nominations, uh, another film that featured in the BAFTA nominations is uh, Ali and Ava. Here is the trailer for Ali and Ava. You just be a bit overprotective, yeah. like you and me. You and just you what? and me. My... You and me? What, is that oh. a... It's not a thing. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Everything you touch, there's no feeling. We're separated. We live in the same house, or separate bedrooms. You need something to keep you Focus on that. Nothing else. I like me near with you. I like every part of you. I'm a six-pack. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? She's telling you now.
The director of the film was already mentioned by our previous guest as an inspiration. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Clio Barnard. How lovely to have you here. How lovely to be here, thank you. How are you? Exciting me. Um, to be honest with you, I'm really, really exhausted. But uh, yes. Um, exhausted because you're working on something? Uh, I'm working on something. Yeah, there's a the very brilliant director, Dylan Southern, is in the house, and uh, so he knows. Yes, it's, I've been working on a, a TV show that is um, has me slammed. So. Um, the, our uh, dialogue editor said it's a bit like uh, someone's put a blindfold around, uh, uh, put a blindfold like a kids game where they put a yeah. blindfold on you, spun us around, then go run for the finish line. <laughs> That's the I'm a bit discombobulated. But in art. a good way, or uh, it's yeah. I mean, I guess what I've realised is that making something like Ali and Ava, you have time but no money, and this is. Yeah, you know, money but no time. And there are, you know, there are, which is there worse. are definite. Which is better? Which is worse? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. Time. There's, there's a lot to be said for time. Yeah. <laughs> so, for people who haven't seen it yet, because it hasn't yet opened in the UK, um, what's the story of Ali and Ava, and where did it come from? Um, the story of Ali and Ava is, it's a love story. It's about. Um, it's really, it's set over a lunar month, and it's about two people who are are a catalyst for change in each other's lives um, and you know both of them are, are are stuck for different reasons and they both allow each other to move on um, yeah and as with all of your projects one of them is often led into the other one where did the inspiration for these characters come from because there are people who directly have inspired the characters that we see on screen um, well, Moe Hassan is a, a is a DJ landlord and actor, and he was in he had a small part in the Arbor, yeah. um, and he inspired the character of Ali, uh, and someone called Rio, who I met through well I was making the Selfish Giant, and really they're people that I got to know and love, and wanted to see their stories writ large on the big screen their so-called ordinary lives, yeah. um, which actually I think are extraordinary lives. And there's a, there's a lot of music in the film, mm -hmm. which is, you know, something of a departure for you. So tell me about that embrace. You, it's kind of verging on being a musical. Well, Tracy O'Riordan here, who's, who's my, my producer of many, many years, we've worked together since, um, since the very, very start. Um, she, she knows that there's, there's part of me that's always secretly wanted to make a musical. I think she has too. So yes, it's my sort of, uh, I guess it's a sort of diegetic musical with, um, with a bit of dancing as well. <laughs> I'm going to show a clip, um, which is the clip with the stones in the car, which is really beautiful. And I think it was interesting, we were just talking about cabaret, is, you know, the music is contained and it's on stage and then there's the thing, so you don't have the people bursting into song. But what you've managed to do is to negotiate that thing about it's a musical without ever getting people to have to go, I'm sorry, why are people bursting into song? Because the dance is kind of spontaneous. Anyway, you don't need me to explain it. It'll explain itself. Here we go. Look at this. Look at this. Hey, That's hey, Matty. Hey. Matty Lee. Oh, you. Hey, 
shop. Stop throwing stones. What's wrong with you? I think we've test run that two or three times, and every time I see it, I just it it just puts such a smile on your face. What was it like to to film it? It was fun, Mark. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Um, um, I keep mentioning Tracy. She sat right there, and I sort of wish she'd come and sit here. Tracy. But, yes. Come on. <laughs> Tracy, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. It's a bit unexpected. Yeah. So, tell me about shooting that scene. Um, well, actually, when you were writing it, we, we were slightly with, is the song on the radio? Should it be playing ahead of them? Underneath the conversation, how much raised is it? And then, you know, has he got... You know, is it is it a mini disc player or is it an iPhone? Or so we had lots of sort of conversations about kind of the questions of what will the audience? You know, how, how do we do this technically, and then how will the audience? How will it be that sort of seamlessness? And yeah. The fact that you're like we pulled it off. I, I'm not quite sure how, but um, I think um, the the kids that you see they're from this estate, and there is so much talent, and they are so. They were so brilliant, and they were all on for it. And we sort of rehearsed in a little in our in our catering room. Actually, after breakfast, we sort of got them all in, and they all showed up. And they helped make that dance. So we were sort of wanted to choreograph something that ex ballet dancer. I just want to say, <laughs> so and choreographer. So I've got yeah. I'm a sort of want to be dancer. So anyway, we I was talking to Claire about it, and it was how choreographed should it be. Um, because it doesn't want to be too, um, uh, too, too technically, you know, it's, it's got to look spontaneous. Yeah. Um, but I think the music, you should talk about MC Innes and the song, he's a local Homewood lad. They all know this song and Homewood, they all know the lyrics. Yeah. Um, so there was a natural, they, they really loved this song and I think it was, you found it. And um, so it's kind of, it, there was an organicness to it, but I think from the start it was very much scripted, um, and then it was about how do we make that seem organic. But is that is that your musical? Take? I mean, I, I had never heard the song before I saw um, your no, film. No, so. I wouldn't say that was necessarily my musical taste, but he, yeah, he's. I really like the song, but yeah, yeah. he's a, he is a Homewood lad, and he did a special. Um, he's MC and is, and he did a special recording of it for us. And also, you raise the spectre of country music, and then he says, and then folk music, I was getting fucking worse. Um, so, where do you stand on folk and country, Clive? I like folk, Mark. Yeah, and no. Good. I like uh, Karen Dalton, who definitely, was definitely my choice. And, um, yeah. 
I found a banjo in the house that I'm staying in. I, I learned how to tune it. I haven't learned how to play it, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, it's fairly easy to play a banjo. <laughs> no, it is. Well, I did, I did have a spare afternoon where I, I sort of learned some very simple... Did you go... Ding, 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 ding. I tried. You did? I tried, but yeah. You know, so can I tell you my, my folk joke? Yes, please. Oh, sorry, it's just because it's a, So, how many folk singers does it take to change a light bulb? Change? <laughs> that's good, that's good. Well, there's, another, there's another version of that, which is how many folk singers does it take to change a light bulb? Five, one to change the light bulb, and four to sing a song about how great the old one was. <laughs> you don't like folk. No, I love folk. I play in a band that plays, but it's the, you know, it's the whole thing about it's the you know, country and western and folk are the two most maligned forms of music, and it's just they both feature in in that scene. Did it feel to you like a different venture? To you? I mean, I've been a you know a huge fan of your features. I mean, I love the Arbor, and I was so fascinated by that thing about you know, what, what, how, do, what, how do you refer to the dramatization of what do you call that? Do, talk, the dramatization of rec audio recordings. What does one call it? Oh, I don't know. You literally call it the dramatisation of audio recordings. Yeah, maybe you do, yeah. And then Selfish Giant, which was so powerful. Did this, did this feel like a different kind of film to you? Uh, yes, and that was a, a lot to do with music and, um, and I guess partly because it was a love story and because I wanted to make something that was very celebratory about yeah. Bradford and, um, and about people that, that Tracy and I really had got to know and love over a, over a really long period of time. And you know the selfish giant and the arbor, in a way, uh, raise really important social issues about uh, inequality and deprivation and marginalisation. And you know I think Ali and Ava does as well. Um, but it's um, I, I, I guess I thought it was really important to make something that showed how beautiful the city was yeah. and how kind people are to each other um, and and ha and joyful. So yeah. That, See, I think that really comes across, that sense of kindness, because it is, you know, it is an area which when people talk about it, often think about it in sort of negative terms. And it seemed to me that this was, there was a real positive energy flowing through the film, which felt like a real rush of joy. And that's why I love the fact that it turned into a musical, because I think you are a musicals director, you see. <laughs> it's like, you know, I think that's secretly what you've been wanting to do all this all time. All this time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There is some music in the arbor, actually, with um, yeah. the the uh, au pairs in the yeah to kind of evoke that era and yeah uh, yeah. It was a lot of fun working with music, and it was a lot of fun kind of integrating it into it and kind of working with it right from the get go. And yeah. And how important because you've got two BAFTA nominations. Yes. So it's for Adil. Uh, Adil, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and. Uh, a British film. Yeah. And how important is that? Um, I think for a film like Ali and Ava, it's important because we don't, having said about uh, budgets or whatever in time, we don't, you know, we don't have a massive amount of um, budget to publicise the film or whatever. So yes, it's in, it's in, it's incredibly important. From a producer's point of view, does it make a big difference? Um, I, I think I think well, you know, BAFTA, you're being voted on by members of you know the people you work with so I think that that's you know um, I think that's really special and I think that um, it's you know I think that Clio is you know a brilliantly talented British filmmaker and and so deservedly uh, you know a female film director who are, you know in the minority and I think we don't 
sometimes see, you know, this celebrates, it's an intimate story and it's celebrating people, you know, putting a spotlight on people we might not always see on the big screen. So I think any chance that we can get to sort of spread the word and, and you know, word of mouth and, and, and awards help you do that and for sure. And the chocolates are really great. The chocolates are really great. <laughs> really fabulous. Really, yeah. really fabulous. Do you think the world is changing? I mean, you said, you know, it should be celebrated because of a great female uh, filmmaker. I mean, I think you're a great filmmaker as is, but is the world changing for women filmmakers? Um, well, before I answer that question, I think one of the reasons I'm really pleased about the outstanding uh, film nomination is because it's for everybody yeah. and it's for everybody that was involved in the film and it's such a col collaborative process so you know Tracy's in the canteen <laughs> getting, getting the kids to dance you know um, Kamal Khan is somebody who um, bec I've become very close to very good friend who's right this moment making his own short film and was um, script consultant on Ali and Ava and he was very, uh, very, um, you know, it, he was, it was, it was very important to him how Bradford was, is represented on the screen. He's a, he's a, somebody who's from Bradford, um, and took me to very specific places in Bradford that he thought should be on the big screen. So, yeah. um, Moe was a collaborator, Rio was a collaborator, um, Adil and Claire, um, Amina, uh, co-producer, you know, so there's a, there's a, it's, it's a, it's a nomination for everybody. Yeah. Now, I asked you to pick two films that were important to you, and you picked two which are really interesting choices. We're going to show clips from both. The first one that you chose was Rashomon, and I had done a BFI introduction for Rashomon recently. Can you remember when you first saw Rashomon? Uh, yes, I can, and, um, yeah, I you was... said that in a worried way. Uh, no, because, um, well, because it involves talking about being a teenager. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I was 18, and um, as you know, we're, as you know, <laughs> I'm sure, there, there were only three channels, on, and, yes. you know, there was... In the same time that there was Walkmans, there was three channels, <laughs> and the television went that. off at the end of the night. And made a beep sound. Yeah, it went beep, and, then, and, and the best thing was, the best thing was, the television finished, and then if you left it on, about 20 minutes later it went, turn your television off, because they were worried about your house catching fire. This is true. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, anyway, they also were really great films shown on TV yeah. late at night. So um, Rashomon was one of them. And um, yeah, and they, I, I, I guess now it's probably quite uh, an accepted idea that, there are diff that, that, that truth is subjective and yeah. that different people have different truths. But certainly when he made it, that, that in the 50s, that wasn't necessarily uh, the case, certainly in cinema. And, and, and I hadn't seen anything like that before that raised those sort of questions and those kinds of ideas. And I think it really did have a profound influence on the arbor and particularly the opening of the arbor when you see the same story told by yeah. two sisters about the same event who have a very different um, take on on what happened we're going to show a clip which is notable for the fact that it's really to get this this ties very much into what we were talking about before about chaplin and silent film acting this is i mean there is dialogue but this is very much for me silent film acting okay, here we go I'm 
でもそんな目で私を見るのはあんまりです You know, it's Lily and Gish. I mean, it's it's just a, just the extraordinary physicality of it. Okay, so I'm really glad you chose that, not least because it meant we get we got to show a, you know, a, a clip from it on the big screen. Now, the second choice is a film that is very very dear to my heart because I remember when I first saw it, thinking this film is far too rude for me to be able to see it, and I was really so. Your second choice was uh, performance. Performance. Which, when the, in, when the BBFC first, well, for ages, they wouldn't, they, they were, the Warners didn't want to release it, and the BBFC thought it was disgusting, and the census report said, even the bathwater is filthy. <laughs> Which is just the greatest recommendation of all time. Um, so tell me when you first saw performance. Oh, I was way too young. <laughs> <laughs> it was on television. <laughs> Yeah, went on these three gen. I was I was fourteen, and um, uh, and my dad actually had an excellent record collection, and one of the records he had was um, was of uh, the Rolling Stones, and it had this cover where all of them had their mouths squashed up against the glass. I don't know if you know that album. Anyway, I was slightly obsessed with this album cover in a probably quite unhealthy way <laughs> and um, and I noticed in the TV listings oh he's in a film this Mick Jagger <laughs> so I uh, snuck the portable TV into my room and um, so and, I, and because I wasn't meant to be watching it I had the volume at one yeah. and I had the yeah, TV yeah. like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was on it was on at late yeah so um, yeah so that's how I watched it and it really did blow my mind. Um, yeah. And <laughs> I think the bit where you go inside Mick Jagger's head is just, I think I understood from that that film could be this very visceral, strange experience. Yeah. Like it didn't, wasn't just about telling a story. Um, and also it did something really weird with what is real and what's fictional. Because Mick Jagger is a rock star yeah. and uh, um, oh my God! I'm blanking on the name. I'm saying Marion Faithful. Marion yeah. Faithful. No, um, Pallenberg. Thank you. Yeah, really. He really was in a relationship. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so you know, that, that, so there was something there about the melding of of, fa of fact and fiction that I found absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I think that 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 had an impact on the kinds of films that I love, which are films that meld fact and fiction, and, and the films that I make, <laughs> which kind of meld fact and, fact and fiction. Um, and I guess my route into making films was through art school, and it's quite an experimental film, and um, so, you know, that was exciting to me and, and new to me. And I think the other thing that's significant about it is when at the age of 35 I went to the NFTS for a sort of for for a year, they ran this this. That's the National course. Film and Television no, sorry, School. Sorry, National Television School. Yeah, and they asked me if I wanted a mentor. I said yes, please. Who would you like? I'd like Nick Rogue, please. So I went and met him, and that was. So did Nick Rogue mentor you? 
Well, we have one meeting, Mark, but, <laughs> but yes, I'd like to. Yeah, so I went and met him in his house, you know, in West London, which was sort of very different from the West London that is in the film, in performance. Um, and yeah, it was, it was brilliant in terms of him saying to me that things that probably everybody knows, but I didn't know at the time, but that the love scene in Don't Look Now was not scripted and they shot it because... Um, because they felt that the relationship, the marriage, you needed to understand how intimate it was, and um, and that uh, that was amazing to me to understand that you might sit and watch dailies and go, oh, this isn't quite working. Let's um, let's let's shoot this scene for the for this reason, um, particularly a sex scene that's as well known as that. Uh, he also told me that Walkabout, the script for Walkabout, was 14 pages long, and that they expanded it in order to get the money. And then once they got the money, they went back to the 14-page version. <laughs> which, you know, so that was really fascinating to me in terms of, of script in relation to, you know, the, what, what yeah. you do as a director. And the other connection for me, which I didn't know when I watched performance, but was um, Sandy Lieb Lieberson, and, um, who was the producer, which is why Tracy is so important, you know, because I think producers often get... Um, they should be in the limelight all the time. Well, here, and here we, have, we are correcting yes, absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, he, he was the producer of performance, and he was also the producer of um, Risu and Bob 2. Right. So when I made the Arbor, the very, the very first person that I went and spoke to was, was Sandy, yeah. um, who talked to me then about performance, and Risu and Bob 2, and Alan Clark, who you know I'm a massive fan of, and by that time sadly passed away, so couldn't meet with him. Okay. Tracy, you've seen performance, I presume? Yes, but quite a long time ago. Okay. Well, we are about to relive Sorry, the experience that you had of watching it literally up against your face because you are sitting about <laughs> as close. So I want to take you back to, to Clio's younger years, which she's in, in her bedroom with the sound turned down to what this is re-experiencing, and this is a great, this is great. It includes male bottoms. <laughs> make films like that anymore <laughs> I mean I have to say the first time I saw it my brain was completely fried and but partly that same thing is I had no idea what was going on because <laughs> it starts out it's kind of a gangster thriller and he takes and then it's just off in this but I love the fact that you had that experience of it and being so close to it and you know and it then it, and I love the fact that you've just made a musical <laughs> so in a way in a way maybe this, this is your kind of your tribute to performance mm. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. When does the film open? 4th of March. 4th of March. Yeah. March. So do go and see it. It's terrific. And uh, I wish you all the best at the BAFTAs. And thank you for coming. It's lovely to have you. So thank you very much. And thank you also, Tracy, for joining us. Thank you very much. Yeah.
There's been a lot of music in today's show. We're going to end up with another bit of music. We always end with sound and vision. Um, when we were doing, when I was doing that thing for the Oscars about, you know, who I thought should be nominated and who might or who won't, I said, I thought Jennifer Hudson's performance in Respect was fantastic. I don't think Respect is a great film, but I think her performance is brilliant. So we're going to close off today's show with this uh, from Respect. It's just, it's a real musical wonderland. So enjoy. Fabulous. <laughs> okay, so look, we've we've overrun, but then I've I've never really kept things to time, and there've been so many people on the stage. So uh, please join me in thanking, and we'll we'll go backwards. So Tracy and Clio, uh, James and Peter, Cherish. Jonas, did I miss anyone? Was that everyone? Nick, Heather and HLA for producing the show, the BFI. Thank you everybody for coming. Stay safe, see you next month. Well, I hope you enjoyed that front row seat at MK3D. As I said, the shows happen at the BFI South Bank every month. If you like the sound of them and you'd like to come along in person, then go to the BFI website for details and tickets. But be warned, we do sell out pretty fast. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe and keep watching the skies. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.